I encourage you to take those Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Today we're going to continue our series in the book of Ephesians, walking through the book. Uh, we've been out of this series for several weeks with Christmas, uh, but now uh, we, I'm excited to jump right back in here in Ephesians chapter 3. Now, one of the things that we've been seeking to do during this time is to memorize the book of Ephesians. And I know I've talked with some of you who are trucking right along. And in fact, this week, you're going to start somewhere in the middle of chapter 5, if I remember right. Maybe somewhere around verse 12 or 13. And, um, and, and that's fantastic. But if you have fallen behind and you said, you know what, I, 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 there's no hope of catching up, I just want to encourage you to, to almost like start over uh, in some ways and just soak yourself in the book of Ephesians. Um, read it over and over again and, uh, and, and immerse yourself in it. I can guarantee you that what you're going to find is that Ephesians is a rich book with a whole lot of application for us and, and guidance for living this Christian life. Now, uh, in, in talking about this Christian life, um, it's not always real easy, is it? In fact, sometimes it gets pretty difficult. Uh, just, just trying to follow through sometimes with what God has, has called us to do can, can be um, hard. Uh, and, and we always have this, this flesh that is pulling us back and, and is trying to draw us into sin. And um, it's sometimes really, really difficult to live a life of godliness and holiness before God. And when Paul gets to Ephesians chapter 3 here, and specifically in this middle part, he knows that, that it's difficult to persevere through this Christian life. There's a, um, there's a composer that you would recognize. Uh, his last name is Handel. His first name, middle name is George Frederick Handel. Um, and there was a point in his life where he was at the lowest that he, could thought, that he thought that he could ever get to. In fact, he was extremely sick. And he had no way to pay a doctor. He had no money whatsoever. In fact, bill collectors were coming to his door every single day and they were knocking on his door saying, give us our money or we're going to send you to debtor's prison. So he had no idea what in the world is going to happen. But he's working on a musical piece. And he's convinced that this musical piece is phenomenal. And so he continues to plug along at it. And, and he would pull himself out of his sickbed every single morning. And he would jump into work. And he would work late into the night. And just ignore the knocks on the door with the bill collectors. But then there came a day in which he finished this musical piece. And it was played. And it was played before the King of England with a massive audience. And there came one point in this, in this, in this oracle that, that is being played where everybody, including the king, just stood to their feet because it was so incredible. Do you know what part that was? The Hallelujah Chorus. Right in the middle of, of Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus plays and, and the world is impacted. The world is changed because of his perseverance. Now, he could have quit at any time in that writing of this musical piece, but he chose not to. He chose to stick with it. He chose to persevere through what he believed God had called him to do. And I believe that Handel's perseverance there is the picture of the perseverance that we have got to have as believers in this Christian walk. There's tough stuff that's happening all around us. But in the middle of that, we hang in there and we follow the Lord no matter what he's calling us to do. When we get to the last part of Ephesians chapter 3 here, Paul is pouring out his heart to God on behalf of the Ephesian church. He wants so badly for them to succeed. He's longing for them to do exactly what God has called them to do, and he wants them to thrive. So what does he do? He prays. 
He goes to God in prayer. He prays a very specific prayer. And we're going to read this prayer together, okay? Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And I want to encourage you, if you're able to do so, would you stand as we read this passage? Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Paul says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Hey, let's pray together. Our Father, as we come and approach your word today, I ask that in these moments you will guide our thoughts, get rid of any distractions we brought into the room with us, and help us to focus solely on you. Father, I thank you for the songs that we've sung that talk about the hope that we have in Jesus. And now, Father, I pray that as we approach your word, Father, you change our lives as a result of our study there. That, Father, the hope that we sang about becomes the hope that we live out. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So Paul's prayer requests in, in this passage are really, really clear. They're, 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 they're passionate prayers. They are simple prayers. Paul is concerned that the Ephesian church is going to lose heart, and so he prays that the church would do four things, okay? First of all, he prays that they would know that they are of the family of God. Secondly, that they would believe in the power of God. Third, that they would understand the love of God. And then fourth, that they would commit to the purposes of God. And we're going to walk through this this prayer in that very same way that, that I just outlined for you right there, okay? So first of all, Paul prays that the church would know that they are of the family of God. Look at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, Paul says that he bows his knees before the Father, all right, now, I, I, I hear that, and I, I think literally, physically, that he probably bowed his knees before God, right? Did you know that you can pray in any, any stance? Did you know you can pray on your knees or standing up? Or, or there, In fact, there's a poem that was written by a man by the name of, what was his name? Sam Walter Foss, entitled The Prayer of Cyrus Brown. Okay, and here's how it goes. The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Keyes, And the only proper attitude is down upon his knees. No, I should say the way way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and wrapped and upturned eyes. No, 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 said Elder Slow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hands should be austerely clasped in front with both thumbs pointing toward the ground, said Reverend Blunt. Last year I fell in Hitchkin's well, head first, said Cyrus Brown, with both my heels a-sticking up and my head a-pointing down. And I made a prayer right then and there, the best prayer I ever said, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed, a-standing on my head. That's the prayer of Cyrus Brown. 
Anyway, it kind of reminds me that it doesn't really matter what your posture is physically. What matters the most is what your posture is, the posture of your heart. See, God is looking for a heart, a person who is bowed in surrender and submission to him. See, when we bow our knees, we're, we're telling God that he is worthy of us coming to. When we bow our hearts, we're telling him, God, you are greater than I am. And, and that's what Paul's doing here. This is a picture that I see as he says that he bows his knees before the Father. When he's writing this, Paul uses two references to family, okay? First of all, he refers to God as Father there. God is the Father of this family. When Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, Matthew chapter 6, you remember he said, when you pray, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven, right? Our Father who art in heaven. Our Father. That's the, the, I'm a part of the family, that's what you're saying, now, the way that it's supposed to be here on earth, an earthly loving father is, is somebody that you can go to with boldness and you can go to them with confidence. You don't have to tremble in fear. You know that your father loves you and that he's got your best interest in mind. And, and listen, it's the same way with God. God is more willing for his children to come to him than they ever are of going to him. Do you hear that? God is more willing for his children to come to him than they ever are of going to him because God is a good father with arms open wide saying, here I am, I'm willing, I'm ready for you to come to me. The second reference that we have here to family comes in verse 15. Paul says this, he says that from the father, every family in heaven and on earth is named. And that doesn't mean that every single person on earth is a part of God's family. When you look at that passage, really in the context of the whole book, you're going to see that it refers to believers from every age of history. So from the Old Testament Israelites and the Old Testament Gentiles who are saved, all the way up through the New Testament church. We're talking about both people in heaven now and people who are here on earth waiting to get to heaven. We're all one family with one father. And that's what Paul has spent the last part of chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3 here in Ephesians talking about. How this mystery of Christ um, pulls all these people together. He unifies people from every nation and tongue. And they, he brings them all into one big family as Christians. And in this great big family, we have God as our Father. Did you know that if you're a part of a family, you belong? Did you know that? I see, I see families all throughout our auditorium here. And, and when you're a part of a family, you belong to, to other people. During the Christmas season, um, one of my kids' favorite movies, Christmas movies, is the Grinch movie, okay? And I'm talking like not the real old, old school Grinch. I'm talking the one that was made a few years ago, the animated version of it. Um, and, and, and there comes a point in that movie where you kind of see why the Grinch is the Grinch. You see why he's full of bitterness and loneliness. He looks out and, and as an orphan, he looks out and he sees all these kids with their families, and he sees that they belong, and for some reason, he doesn't belong. He's by himself. So he's filled with this bitterness and this loneliness, longing for a family. And you know, that's exactly what God does for us. It's exactly what he does. When we are cast off from him, when we are orphans, spiritual orphans, he brings us into his family. He adopts us. He makes us his own. You belong when you're a part of a family. You belong. The first thing that Paul wants this church to know is that you are a part of a family. You are a part of a family. 
It's the first prayer that he has. The second prayer that he has is that they would believe in the power of God. That they would believe in the power of God. Look at verse 16 and 17. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, this is not the first time that Paul has talked about the power that a Christian has. In fact, if you look back at chapter one, you may remember us talking about this. He talks about the power that is given to the believer by God. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the grave and that is now available to the Christian. That's the power that is at hand for a Christian. Now, the problem is that most Christians don't tap into that power. And I think there's several reasons for that. First of all, I think that oftentimes they have no idea about the power that God offers. They think that the gospel is something that only ushers them into salvation, and they don't realize that it's powerful and meant to be lived out in every facet of our lives. I think that sometimes um, Christians are scared of being viewed as a fanatic or charismatic, so they ignore God's power. Some Christians are so comfortable in their own power that they never see the need in anything else. You know what? I'm okay here. My life is okay. I have enough money in the bank. I have a good church that I go to. I have this, 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 and this. I'm doing all right. And they don't see the need in tapping into anything else because they're comfortable where they're at. But then I think that there's some Christians who are well aware of the power that's offered by God, but they're just lazy. They're content enough with the fire insurance of their salvation that they don't really care to live any deeper. But all of these are contrary to God's design for the church. Because his plan for the church has always been to be charging the gates of hell and rescuing people who are lost and dying without Jesus. And he doesn't leave us alone in that mission. In fact, Jesus himself promised that he, that, that he would leave his presence and he would leave his power so we can carry out what he's called us to do. So Paul gets to this prayer and his prayer is that according to the immeasurable riches of God's glory, that we would be strengthened with his power and that our faith would be stretched to the max. That we would go in what God calls us to do. Now, church, I'm going to be completely honest with you. Um, if, if your faith is limited to what only, this, say this, to only what you're comfortable with, then you're missing out on some of the greatest joys that this life has to offer. If your Christian faith is limited to just coming into this place Sunday after Sunday, or maybe you sit in front of your TV Sunday after Sunday, and you observe, and sometimes you write a check to support the ministry, then you're missing out on some incredible things that God wants to do in and through you. God's got a plan for redeeming the world, and we get to be a part of that plan. His plan is for us to be a part of that plan. But if we never tap into God's power, and if we never pray bold, audacious prayers for God's power to be at work within us, then I can guarantee that his power never actually will be at work within us. He's looking for Christians who will believe in the awesome, never running out power that he offers. What do you believe that God is capable of doing? What do you believe that God's capable of doing? And if you're thinking that what you're seeing God do around you right now is all that there is to life, then man, you're missing out because you hadn't seen anything yet. God wants to do, always wants to do so much more than he's currently doing. You know, I want to be a part of a family, a body of believers 
whose faith in what God can do is reflected in what we actually see God doing. You may say, well, why? Why do you want to be a part of that? Is it because you want to build your own kingdom? Is it because you want to, for selfish reasons, this, this, or this? And no, it's honestly, it boils down to one very, very simple answer. I want to be a part of what God is doing because God loves me enough to die for me. So he deserves everything that I've got. And that brings me to my next point here, that Paul prays that the church would understand the love of God. That he would understand the love of God, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You know, the Bible's got a whole lot to say about the way that God loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Christ showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, not while we were perfect, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I'm sure, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jeremiah 33, 31.3 says, God says this. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. 1 John 1.9, we love because he first loved us. Over and over and over again, all throughout the Psalms, we find that God loves us with a steadfast, never-ending, never-stopping kind of love. Paul's prayer here in Ephesians chapter 3 is that the church would understand the love of God. It's a love that surpasses knowledge. It means that, that means that it goes beyond anything that we can understand even. We have this finite comprehension of love, but God says it goes far beyond that. My love is vast. It is unmeasurable. Do you know that God loves you? Even to the point of dying for you. Do you know that God loves you? That love is to be the motivation for serving the Lord. That love is to be the motivation for everything that we do. D.L. Moody uh, told a story one time of, of a young man that he met while he was in Birmingham, England. Moody was over there preaching, and, and this young man walked up to him after he got done preaching, and this young man said, I'm coming to America soon, and when I get there, I'm going to come preach in your church. Well, Moody's really amused by this, because Moody's the one that travels all over the world preaching. Moody's the one that puts on the revivals, and the people get saved, and Moody's the great preacher. He has no idea who this young man is. He didn't really say anything. Doesn't think he'll hear from him anymore. But a couple months later, he gets a letter from this young man, saying, and this man says, hey, I'm, I'm in New York. Um, I'm going to come to Chicago, and I'm going to preach in your church on this particular Wednesday night. And he listed the date that he was going to preach in his church. Well, Moody is shocked. I mean, he is absolutely shocked. Why would this young man have the audacity to come and, and to say that he's going to preach in his church? But then he starts looking at his calendar, and he realizes, wait a minute, I'm out of town that Wednesday night. So he calls in his deacons. He says, deacons, listen, there's this young man. He, he says he's going to come preach in my church, and, and um, I say we just let him do it, but I want you to be ready because if it's really bad, you've got to step in and, and, and take over. And then he leaves. He goes out of town. The young man comes into town, and that Wednesday night shows up, and he opens up his Bible, John 3.16, and he preaches one of the most simple sermons known to man. But when he got done, nobody left. In fact, he said, maybe I ought to get a, give an invitation. 
When he gave the invitation, 20 people came to faith in Jesus. Well, the deacons are absolutely astounded. And they, they, they came to the guy and they said, hey, would you come back tomorrow night and, do the, and, and, and preach again? The guy said, yeah, I'll be happy to. So he comes back the, night, the next night and, and there's many, many more people that were there the, on Thursday night than they were on Wednesday night. And, and word has spread and he preaches once again. He opens his Bible to John 3, 16 and he preaches the very same sermon he just preached the night before. Once again, 20 people come to faith in Jesus. The deacon said, come on, we want you to come back tomorrow night. So Friday night, he comes back, and there's many, many more people. That night, 30 people came to know Jesus. The deacon said, we want you to come back tomorrow night, Saturday night. Well, on, sun, on Saturday afternoon, D.L. Moody comes back into town, and his wife says, hey, we're going to revival tonight. He says, revival? I didn't schedule a revival. Who in the world is preaching in my church, preaching a revival in my church? She said, well, there's a revival going on, and we're going. She says, because you need to be converted. All right. He says, converted? Well, I've been preaching for over 40-some years, and I've been pastor of this church for 20-some years. Why would I need to be converted? And she said, I want you to come with me and see. That night, he's sitting on the front row. Young man gets up, and he opens his Bible, John 3, 16, and once again preaches one of the most simple sermons known to man. At the end of that message, D.L. Moody said, I never felt so like getting converted all over again in my life. This went on for six weeks. Every single night, the young man preached on John 3, 16. Hundreds of people came to know Jesus as their Savior. It ended up being one of the greatest revivals in American history. When it was all over, Moody wrote these words. He says, it changed my preaching. Heretofore, I had been preaching on the Sinai side of the cross, the perdition and the damnation side of the cross, the penalty for sin side of the cross. But after that young man preached for six weeks on John 3, 16, I preached on the other side, the Calvary side, the love of God side, the grace and mercy of God side. I began to preach on the outpouring of the spirit of grace side of the cross. I'll come back to Ephesians chapter 3 for a moment. What Paul's trying to communicate to these believers is very simply the love of God. That you, he says, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to understand the love of God because it is that love that is to be the motivation for everything that you do for God. It's the love of God that changes lives and changes the world. Some of us have forgotten the love of God. Some of us have forgotten how much God loves us. And you know what? It comes across in your hatefulness and in the way that you treat other people. Sometimes your forgetfulness of God's love comes across in the way that you treat yourself. You don't see yourself as God's child. You don't see yourself as someone who is bought with a price. You think that you are nothing more than a worthless rag and that God is looking at you through his son in that way. But no, God is looking at you and he is saying, no, I love you with an everlasting, never stopping love. Never forget that the love of Jesus sent, the love of God sent Jesus to the earth, sent him to the cross, sent him to a grave, sent him out of that grave and then back to heaven where right now he is preparing a place for us. Never forget the grace and the mercy that you've been shown. And take that transforming love and show somebody else how much they are loved.
Here's the last prayer that Paul has in this passage. He prays that the church would commit to the purposes of God. Now to him, he says, who is able to do, uh, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God's purpose for all generations is that he would receive the glory that he is due through the church and through Jesus. He is able to do far more than we can even imagine to receive that glory. And he's asking that we commit to carrying out his purpose. That means that we just very simply say this. It's a prayer that you can see on the screen with you as I read it. God, whatever you want from me in my church, I'll do it. I trust your heart and your plans more than I trust my heart and my plans. And when that is our true desire, then God can take us and do more than we could ever imagine. I'm going to sum up this whole sermon in one sentence, okay? And you want to take a picture of this or you want to write this down so you can remember it. For those who are a part of the family of God, who believe in the power of God, who understand the love of God and are committed to the purposes of God, what God can do is limitless. I want to lead us in a time of prayer as we, as we close this sermon time. And I want to ask that you just bow your heads. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, you've, there's never been a time in which you gave your life to Jesus and you repented of your sins. And you want to know more about how to be a part of God's family. Then I just want to challenge you. Just step out of your seat right now and go back there towards the back. I see Pastor Dwayne back there. Others can be back there just to show you what it looks like to have a relationship with God, to be a part of God's family. Step back there and, and talk with him about what that means. If you are a Christian, just take just a moment here and thank God for belonging in his family. And then ask God to increase your faith in his power and in what he can do. And now just praise God for his love. And then commit yourself to doing only what will bring God glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, to him be glory in the church 
and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.